Hello and welcome back to the Annick Castle podcast. I'm Deborah Beecroft and if you're listening to today's episode on its day of release, today is International Women's Day. We are marking the occasion by exploring the stories of some of the most important women in Annick Castle's history, who have effectively been written out of that history by sources that focus instead on their fathers, husbands or sons. Today we'd like to share some of what we do know about a few key individuals. We will be introducing you to two Norman heiresses from the 12th century and another heiress from the 14th century, but our main focus this episode will be on Anne Somerset, a Tudor Countess of Northumberland who became part of rebellions, secret escapes and political espionage. I'm joined today by Victoria. Hello. Who will be reading the historical quotations for me. We hope you enjoy the episode. Agnes and Maud de Percy, the Norman sisters. Agnes and Maud lived more than a century before the Percy family purchased Annick Castle in 1309, but they are still two of the most significant sisters in its history. In 1175, they became co-heiresses of the third Baron de Percy, his only legitimate children. Both were married to noblemen, but both outlived their husbands and were able to keep control of their share of family lands until their own deaths in the early 13th century. Maud's husband died in 1184 and she negotiated an agreement with the king that she would not only keep control and possession of the land she had inherited, but also that she would not have to remarry unless she found someone who was to her satisfaction. She did not find anyone, so instead lived in an almost royal level of splendour as a widow for the next two decades. Agnes's marriage seems to have been arranged by another influential woman of the time, Queen Adeliza, wife of Henry I. Adeliza had sent word to France for her half-brother, Jocelyn, to join her in England, to share her prosperity and happiness. She also appears to have had a wife for Jocelyn in mind, Agnes de Percy, a maid of honour at the royal court. The wedding probably took place in around 1150, when Agnes would have been barely 16 years old. Queen Adeliza was a witness to the marriage. Some sources claim that Agnes's father added a condition to the marriage. Jocelyn would only be allowed to marry Agnes upon condition that he should be called Jocelyn Percy or else that he should bear the arms of the Lord Percy. This would mean the family name could continue despite a lack of male heirs. The same sources suggest Jocelyn took advice from his sister Adeliza and chose to take Agnes's family name. This probably isn't true, but Jocelyn does appear to have agreed that the eight children he and Agnes had together would take their mother's name. Maud died in 1203 and Agnes died only a year or two after her sister, at the age of around 70, having outlived Jocelyn by nearly a quarter of a century. Like her sister, Agnes was able to keep control of her lands for the rest of her lifetime and gained a reputation as generous and kind to relatives and church institutions. She was buried in Whitby Abbey on her saint day, the feast day of St Agnes. Her reputation for devotion and kindness in life was immortalised on her tombstone, which was inscribed with the following... On the Feast of St Agnes, Agnes Percy lies here engraved, and they both agree in kind, name and life. Agnes's sons did keep her family name, and through her carried on the dynasty which continues to this day. Maud de Lucy, the first Countess of Northumberland. In the early 1380s, the first Earl of Northumberland married Maud Lucy. It was the second marriage for both of them, and made Maud the first countess, as her husband had only recently been elevated to his new position. It also made his stepmother to his sons, including famous knight Harry Hotspur. Maud was also an heiress. She and her new husband inherited several areas of land from her family, mainly in Cumbria, but only on the condition that her Lucy family heraldry was shared with that of the Percys on coats of arms and other heraldic displays. 
You can still see the Lucy fish alongside Percy Lyons on the carved ceiling of Annick Castle's dining room today. She is said to have had great affection for the Earl, and he seems to have trusted Maud to run some of his business in Northumberland. A document in the Annick Castle archives recording the confirmation of a charter mentions Maud as its chief witness in 1381, despite the Earl's sons being present at the family castle of Warkworth at the same time, and describes her as our most dear wife. It was very rare for a woman to have been in this important official position and suggests Maud had a high level of responsibility and power in family affairs. Maud did not live to see her husband and stepson overthrow King Richard II in 1399. She died the previous year and was buried in St. Bee's Priory in Cumbria next to her brother Anthony. Her skeleton was discovered in the late 20th century and when it was re-examined in 2016, modern imaging techniques attempted to recreate how she may have looked. The image is the only one we have of Maud. We know of none from her own lifetime. Anne Somerset, the Elizabethan rebel. In the summer of 1558, Anne Somerset married Thomas Percy, the new 7th Earl of Northumberland. We know a little about their domestic life in the following years, thanks to the survival of the Earl's household rules. These documents record purchases of apparel and other necessaries for Anne and two of her daughters, Elizabeth and Lucy. The name of one of the ladies of her household, Mistress Rebecca Witherington, is also known. Anne's marriage appears to have been happy, but most of what we know of her life relates to her role in the religious turmoil of the Elizabethan era. By the end of the 1560s, Mary, Queen of Scots, had arrived in England and suspicions were growing in the court of Elizabeth I that the Earl of Northumberland and the nearby Earl of Westmoreland were planning to lead a rebellion in favour of Catholicism and of Mary. It is unknown whether Anne and her husband ever met the Scottish Queen, but Mary's envoy to the Elizabethan court claimed that shortly after arriving in England, Mary said that She had many good friends in this country that did favour her and stick to her, such as the Earl of Northumberland and his lady, with whom she had many intelligences and messages. A 19th century history of Scotland claims that because Anne was said to closely resemble Mary in looks, she had made an attempt to rescue the Queen from prison by disguising herself as a nurse and then changing clothes with Mary to allow her a chance to escape. Even if this story is true, the attempt must not have been successful. But Anne and her husband do appear to have favoured Mary over the Protestant Elizabeth. In 1569, as rumours of rebellion continued to spread, the English Queen was advised to invite the two earls to her court, which would keep them out of the north and hopefully out of trouble for a while. She asked her representative in the north, the Earl of Sussex, to deliver the invitation. His report back stated that Northumberland promiseth to come, but he writeth not when. The Earl of Westmoreland refuseth to come for fear of his enemies. My Lady Northumberland says there will be no trouble, but I will not trust any more words. Historians disagree on how active a part Anne played in the lead-up to what became the Northern Rebellion, also known as the Rising of the North. Some have depicted her as stronger and more assertive than her husband, encouraging him to continue with the plan to overthrow the Queen despite his doubts. Others argue that despite Anne's religious piety and her sympathy with the beliefs of the Rebellion, she was intelligent enough to realise that it was unlikely to succeed and would not have risked her family's ruin by coming into open conflict with the crown. Rather than urging her husband to rebel, she tried to persuade him not to. What we do know is that on the night of 14th of November 1569, the conflicted Earl of Northumberland had gone to bed at Topcliffe Castle in Yorkshire, still unsure about what to do. Before sunrise the next morning, however, Anne had woken him with the news of immediate danger, 
The castle was being surrounded with troops loyal to Queen Elizabeth under orders to arrest him. Anne's warning meant her husband was able to escape just in time and an open rebellion soon began. The rebel forces gathered support across the north and Anne met up with them as they travelled towards Yorkshire. Elizabeth's army quickly put an end to the uprising and the Earl of Countess of Northumberland fled towards Lidsdale in Scotland. Sussex, writing to Elizabeth I at the end of the year, stated that the couple had found shelter in the home of a notorious thief and outlaw named John of the Side in a cottage not to be compared to any dog kennel in England. The Earl soon left the safety of the outlaw's house, but despite using a fake name and dressing as an outlaw himself, walked into a trap and was soon in the custody of the Regent of Scotland. This left Anne and two women who had accompanied her alone with John of the Side and his gang of thieves. According to one source, the thieves very quickly stole Lady Northumberland's horse and her two women's horses and other horses so that they left her on foot at John of the Side's house and the Laird of Ormonston took her jewels, money and clothing. Now without money and with only the clothes she wore, Anne had to find refuge in Scotland. By January 1570, she'd made it to Hume Castle in Berwickshire where she was taken in by Lord and Lady Hume. Queen Elizabeth demanded the region hand over anyone who had taken part in the rebellion her list of names included both the Earl and Countess of Northumberland. But while the Earl was kept captive in Edinburgh, the region seemed to have had sympathy for Anne and allowed her to stay in Scotland. He said, Hearing of her great misery and inhumane usage by the outlaws and thieves, I declared to the countrymen that I would not take it in evil part, who's ever received her. Anne began to make plans for her future and for the safety of her family. A letter written to the Earl's brother tells us more about her position at the time. She might have access to my lord in Edinburgh, but she thinketh not, till she have some more warrant from the lord regent. She being at liberty, she is able to think about assistance for my lord now, and hath already sent home to her friends. Her request is that if you would send some trusty men of your own to my lord and her, you might please them very much. My lady Northumberland hath sent to your wife, and earnestly desireth her, to send her some apparel, as she is destitute both of wool and linen." Anne was also concerned about her daughters. When she fled the failed rebellion, the Percy children had been left in Yorkshire. Her eldest daughter was only 11 or 12 years old. A letter from the Earl's brother to Sussex suggests he had checked in on the girls and discovered they were running out of food and were struggling to keep warm through the winter. Passing by the young ladies, I found them in hard case, for neither had they any provisions nor one penny to relieve with, but some little things from me. They would gladly be removed. Their want of fire is great, whose years may not suffer that lack. By spring 1570, Anne's main goal was to raise enough money to convince her husband's new custodian, William Douglas, to set him free, or let him escape. But Queen Elizabeth's anger at the rebellion had not faded, and any friends to whom Anne appealed for money chose to ignore her. Even her brother declined to receive a servant who came with a message from his sister, the Countess of Northumberland, until she should submit herself to the Queen. Her brother-in-law did not dare to help. The risk that Elizabeth would suspect him of sympathy with the rebels was too great for him. Though he did write to the Queen's chief adviser, William Cecil, to say, I hear my brother is very penitent and his wife in great misery. One courtier who did respond was Lord Hunsdon, a cousin of the Queen and one of the military leaders who had helped defeat the rebels. Anne gratefully acknowledged Hunsdon's letters and begged him to make intercession with the Queen for her children and servants. But the Queen just condemned him for corresponding with the rebel. By the summer, Douglas had decided on a suitable amount of money for the Earl's ransom. But it was so high, Anne realised she would need to travel overseas to the Spanish Netherlands, modern-day Belgium, and appeal personally to the governor there for help. She boarded a ship from Aberdeen to Antwerp with several other fugitives and arrived at the end of August 1570 
apparently, with neither penny nor halfpenny. The governor received her with kindness and courtesy, and promised to use his influence with King Philip II of Spain to provide the money. Unfortunately, the king was only willing to give her a little over half the amount. Anne's response to the governor suggests she may have begun to lose hope. She wrote, My poverty is well known to all Catholic princes, and in fulfilment of my duty towards God, I submit without murmuring to the deprivation of my Lord's company, the absence of my children, banishment from my country, and the loss of estate and property. It took until the middle of 1571 for the rest of the money to be raised. The remainder was promised by the Pope. But back in Scotland, Douglas refused to release Anne's husband until the money was in his possession. In the first few months of 1572, two full years after she had last seen the Earl, Anne wrote to Douglas in a final attempt to persuade him to accept the money, rather than trust any promises from Elizabeth I, who still wanted the Earl to face justice in England. And, good my lord, think upon me one way, that I must earnestly wish and desire my husband's freedom and liberty. So would I do all that I could in the world to procure it and bring it to pass. She wrote a series of letters to the Earl around the same time, apologising... If your business have not come to pass so soon as you wished, for by occasion of the greatness of the sum and the want of sufficient assurance, the time hath been delayed. The letters contained a list of people who might help him escape from Scotland, and Anne wrote about her aim to be reunited with their daughters. For your children, the best means that I can imagine to have them transported here is for a suit to be made to have them licensed to come to see you, and then, being left with the Lady Hume or some of your other friends, they may be transported here. For other means, I can perceive none. To escape secretly were to great danger. She signed the letters. You know by whom. Anne had not given up her ideals during her time at the court of the Netherlands. She believed... England and Spain must join together and patch up an old league, or otherwise they will burst forth into open wars. And noted the comings and goings of important French Catholics. The Duke of Guise hath been here secretly two months past. Additionally, she kept up a secret corded correspondence with Mary Queen of Scots and her envoy. Also living in Antwerp at the time was John Lee, who had welcomed the English fugitives when they arrived, and was known as a devout Catholic and supporter of Mary. Anne used him multiple times to communicate with England and Scotland. Unfortunately, every word spoken to him or written in letters was passed on to Elizabeth I's government. John Lee was one of the English Queen's most active spies and kept William Cecil informed of every step in the negotiations for the Earl's freedom. The Regent of Scotland had a choice. Allow Douglas to accept the bribe, letting the Earl escape but upsetting Elizabeth, or have the Earl sent to England receiving a generous payment but upsetting his countrymen. He chose the latter. Despite last-minute attempts by Anne to convince the kings of Spain and France to intercede, her husband was conveyed over the Scottish border into England and taken past Annick to York, where he was beheaded in 1572. The now-widowed Countess of Northumberland lived another 20 years, separate from her children, forgotten and ignored by former friends, living in exile and relative poverty, using her money to support several poor ladies who had followed her across the sea. However, she never lost her piety and continued to communicate with the Scottish Queen as well as hold meetings with fellow rebellious Catholics. The Elizabethan government still monitored her activities. One of Cecil's spies reported, The rebels hold council at the house of the Countess of Northumberland in Brussels, and many bad words they speak of your lordship. Some have vowed to shorten your days. I have shown the government this lady's assemblies and practices. The Countess is a bad woman in every way. Anne died of smallpox in a convent in modern-day Belgium in September 1591. By the time of her death, more Catholic plots against Elizabeth had failed. Her brother-in-law had been killed on suspicion of Catholicism, and Mary, Queen of Scots, had been executed. 
She devoted her years of exile to her cause and her religion, and it seemed some of her devotion was passed on to her daughters. Elizabeth Percy possessed a relic from a thorn from the crown of thorns bequeathed to her from her father, who had been given it by the Scottish Queen. Another daughter, Mary, became prioress of a convent in Brussels. Anne's life was a remarkable one, but it has often been overlooked in favour of her husband's. We hope you've enjoyed hearing her amazing story today. There are so many fascinating women in the history of Annick Castle, we couldn't fit them all into just one podcast. So on the next episode, we'll be back with a second part looking at Percy women from the 17th century onwards. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please give us a like, share a recommendation if you did. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, thank you to Victoria for joining us today. You're welcome. And I've been Deborah, and goodbye.